those of you that, uh, that don't know me, it's been an honor to, uh, to come back and to meet uh, so many new people that are coming from the church. I mentioned in the first service, it's, it's, it's always weird for me coming back because I started attending this church when I was 13 with my family, and we had a different pastor. Pastor left, Shannon came in, we had a stage over here, there was like an old 80s TV like up in the corner there. We had three racquetball courts, we had a part of the original bar back there, because this used to be a bar, um, that we would serve coffee on. Um, and so it's just amazing to see what God's done in this church and just the change that he's brought in the building. Um, but even more than that, it's amazing to see how your guys' hearts here, the people of God in this church, have not changed and you guys continue um, to be a people that are after God's own heart. Um, and that's what I truly love, to come back and to see those that I know, as well to see all the new faces that have joined the church. Um, so it's an honor to be here. Um, so let's uh, move on to the, uh, the message. Oh, and one more thing. Um, I had the opportunity to teach the first half of the Gospel of Mark back in Mozambique um, last summer, uh, as part of my internship for school, and so I was able to go back and connect uh, with the people that I had lived with while I was there for a year. Um, and while we were there, we taught the first half of Gospel of Mark in two locations. Uh, we trained about 120 uh, pastors and local church leaders, um, and we had about 70 hours of combined teaching in those uh, three weeks that we were there. Um, and the church as a whole supported me in that, and many of you guys individually supported me in that. And thank you so much for uh, just supporting me prayer financially with your encouragement and just allowing me to be an extension of, of you guys and going out and ministering there in Mozambique. So I really appreciate that. Um, but enough about me. Let's get on to the message today. Um, as Shannon's been talking about, we're back in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and I just want to address a little bit of context before we get into it. Um, as you guys probably know and are probably sick and tired of hearing, the theme of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus is the Messiah. Um, however, Mark explains this theme in his gospel in two sections. The first half of the gospel of Mark, Mark is constantly asking the question, who is Jesus? And as readers, as we're following along, Mark keeps us on the edge of our seats because we're constantly wanting to say, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah. But we don't get that until chapter 8, verse 29, when Peter proclaims, you are the Christ. And finally, the disciples, they realize that Jesus is the Messiah. However, just because they realize who Jesus is doesn't mean that they know the significance of what it means for him to be the Messiah or exactly um, what he was to do as the Messiah. Um, and so that's where we find ourselves today um, in chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. We find that the disciples still don't quite understand what it means for Jesus to be the to be the Messiah. And so kind of the title or the question of this message today um, is what does it mean to worship the Messiah? Um, and as we seek to answer this question, we're going to follow Shannon's typical format that he's been going through in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to look at the what, um, what this narrative meant to the people uh, of Jesus' day. We're going to look at the so what, uh, what lessons do we extract from this passage? And we're going to finally look at the now what or the application. What does this mean for us today? Um, so if you guys could open up your Bibles uh, or maybe your apps on your phone or maybe you want to follow along on the screen here if that's easier for you, um, let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. It says, While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, 
as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, a pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Would you guys please bow your heads and open in a word of prayer with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for the ability to come together as a church body, Father. All of us have had different weeks. Um, most of us are different ages and uh, we're different genders and we've lived different lives. We have different stories, um, but we're all your children and we come together as your body in unity this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to open it. We thank you for the ability to hear from you um, and we ask that you would speak to um, our hearts and you would enlighten our minds this morning and then give us the strength, the courage, and the wisdom to act upon what we learn from your word and uh, as we live in relationship with others and in relationship with you. In your name, amen. All right, so as we get into the, um, the what today, I want to quickly go over a few things um, of, to just to give you a little bit of greater context on the specific passage that we're in, um, chapter 14, 3 through 9. Uh, and also just a quick note, that uh, Matthew 26, uh, verses 3 through 12, and John 12, 1 through 8, are parallel accounts um, of the same story, but they give slightly different information. So we're going to draw from those accounts from time to time to help us understand what's going on here. So first, let's go ahead and let's address uh, the time. Now, Mark tells us that uh, it was two days before the Passover. Um, However, when we go to the Gospel of John, John tells us that it was six days before the Passover. Now, what this means is that Mark has inserted this story as a sort of flashback because what Mark is doing is um, he's seeking to contrast the devotion and the attitude of the woman in this story with the indignation and the treachery of the Pharisees and of the disciple that was about to betray him. Now, this is a typical thing for Mark to do throughout his gospel. Shannon's probably talked about it before, um, this sort of non-chronological ordering. Um, however, beyond this, it's also important for us to remember um, what the Passover was. Now, the Passover was a time of celebration where the Israelites would come together for about a week, and they would celebrate God's deliverance of them as a people out of Egypt and into the land of Israel. And specifically, during this time, as they were occupied by the Romans, um, they also looked for it as a possible time that God might bring the Messiah, that God might deliver them um, from the Roman occupation. So that's an uh, important thing for us to remember. And also, um, six days before the Passover, the Passover traditionally started on a Friday. Um, so counting back six days, that makes this a Saturday, which means this would be the Sabbath. Um, and also, this is, um, 
this is the, uh, Jesus' first day in Bethany. Um, and this is at dinner time. So we find that, uh, that um, Jesus is, sorry, it's a Sabbath dinner. Um, so now we're going to go to the place. So we find that Jesus is celebrating the Sabbath in Bethany. It's his first day, um, the night before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So Bethany is about three miles outside of Jerusalem. And uh, that green line is the route that Jesus would have taken to get into Jerusalem. He would have gone through Bethphage and then down through the Garden of Gethsemane, down into the Kidron Valley before he ascended uh, to the Temple Mount. Um, and the reason this is important is because the area around Bethany um, probably had accommodations for lepers. As we know historically, there were three areas of refuge set up east of the city um, for the lepers. And this is significant because our host of the dinner, uh, moving on to the people, is Simon the leper. Um, and we say uh, Simon was a former leper um, because if Simon was a leper, no one would have come to his house for Sabbath dinner and no one would have celebrated with him because he was an outcast. So he had been healed in the past, maybe by Jesus. Um, so this could have been a great honor for him to host Jesus. Well, either way, it was a great honor for him to host Jesus. Um, but anyways, he's now cleansed. And the reason that leper is still attached to his name is because Simon was an extremely common name during the time. And uh, this was a way to differentiate him from the many other Simons. Uh, if you've been to the Condra house, you know that we live on James Way. And the reason that James Way is called James Way is because my dad's name is James. And shortly thereafter, someone else moved in and his name was James. And then shortly thereafter, someone else moved in, and his name was James. So if you come to the Condra house, you'll hear us say, oh, yeah, that house over there, that's Big Jim. Well, because Jim's rather big. Um, and then if you go to the other house, we'll say, oh, well, that's Chicken Jim, because Jim has a lot of chickens. Um, so that's a way that we differentiate um, those Jims from our dad, Jim. And so this is the same thing that's going on here. It's a way of differentiating Simon. Um, so next we find the woman. Um, and the woman, although unnamed here, John informs us that she is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, um, who Jesus has raised from the dead. Thus we know that she is not a sinful woman, but a devout follower of Jesus. Uh, and John also tells us that uh, Mary, um, or that Martha and Lazarus were also present at this meal. So, um, moving on to the sum... We find that Matthew and, John, Matthew and John then inform us that the sum is sometimes referring to the disciples as a group collectively, and sometimes it's referring only to Judas. Um, so present at this dinner, we have a group of at least 16 people. This includes the 12, Simon the leper, Mary, Martha, um, and of Lazarus, and of course Jesus. However, because this was at someone's house, if Simon was married, he might have had some children or something around. So this is uh, an intimate dinner with close friends on the Sabbath before the Passover. It's an important thing to remember. Now, you might be asking the question, why does Mark not mention um, uh, Mary's name or the disciples? Why is he more vague about this? Now, I think Mark is doing this because Mark is not particularly concerned about who is doing the speaking or who is acting, but rather instead he wants us to focus on the attitudes 
uh, on the attitudes of the people involved. He wants us to focus on Jesus as the Messiah, and he wants us to focus on what it is to worship him. And of course, the last person we have here uh, is Jesus. If you guys don't know who Jesus is, I'm so glad you're here. This is the place to learn about him. Um, <laughs> but seriously, if this is your, maybe your first time here, your first time at church in a long time, and you have questions about Jesus, talk with someone after the church. See Phil back there at the bar. He is a fantastic guy to talk to about Jesus. I love talking with Phil about Jesus. So talk with any of us. Uh, that would be great. So now that we've set the stage, let's, uh, let's jump into the narrative. Um, and we're going to cover three things or um, kind of three people or a group of people, um, what happens over the course of this narrative, and I'm going to ask you to note three things about each one of these people or groups of people. So we're going a little hyper-Baptist today, um, doing that in honor of Shannon uh, and his background, Um, but if you guys would just follow along and take note of those with me, um, I would appreciate that. So first, we find the woman with this alabaster jar of perfume. Um, And we know that this was, uh, so we note that she brought this jar. So the first thing that we note about the woman is that she came prepared. She brought something with her. Now the people of the time would have immediately known that this was an expensive perfume as the best were kept in alabaster jars and nard was one of Chanel quality. Um, Now, A woman at this time would have had such a jar of perfume for one of two reasons. She would have either had it for her dowry or she would have had it for her burial. Um, And we are also told later that it's worth about a year's wages. Um, So this is something of great value, not only monetarily, but also culturally to her. Um, And thus we note, um, and so this is not something that she would just carry around with her. So thus we note a second thing about the woman. She's willing to produce. And she was willing to give up something that represented a significant port or a significant portion of her presence, a significant portion of her present as well as her future. This brings us to a third thing about the woman. We note that she had purpose. The fact that she brought something of so much value to a Sabbath dinner informs us of this, that it was a premeditated act. She brought this with a specific purpose in mind to fulfill. And with that, she approaches Jesus, probably from behind, as would have been the easiest way to approach him. She breaks the top of the jar off, and she pours the oil over Jesus' head, thus anointing him. And she left none to spare. However, this forces us to ask the question, why did she do this? Why would you take something of such great value, both culturally and monetarily, What's the significance of pouring this over Jesus' head? Well, we have two possible answers here or explanations. And the first is that anointing was a common thing to do at feasts, Um, especially when you got together for dinner. uh, Perfume acted as like a sort of deodorant um, because people didn't wear deodorant at the time. So just imagine if we're all here together and no one's got deodorant on. I would want to be anointed with some perfume before we got in here (laughs) so we didn't have to smell each other. And also, the most expensive perfumes of the time would have been reserved for special guests and a way of showing honor to them. So maybe she's acting out a common custom in such a way that's extravagant to show um, her love for Jesus. Um, However, there's a second thought. Her action is strangely, strangely reminiscent of the anointing of kings and prophets and priests in the Old Testament. 
Um, we see this in the example of the anointing of Saul, Solomon, uh, David, Jehoshaphat, and Aaron. Um, and this often, uh, this often occurred in private and sometimes signaled a revolt. So she could be anointing the anointed one with the oil of his coronation to set him apart for his office as the Messiah and perhaps to prepare for revolt against the Roman Empire. So next, we move on to the some, the some who critique. Now, I want you to, again, note three things about the some who critique. Their attitude, their assumption, and their action. First, their attitude. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? I imagine the look of shock and the murmurs that turn into grumbling. What has she done? What a waste. I think their attitude was, we know better than you. And this leads us to note a second thing about them, their assumption. The disciples assumed that they could do better than the woman. One in particular, as John tells us, Judas thought that this perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now, as we already talked about, 300 denarii was about a year's worth of wages. So a modern example of this <laughs> would be Chanel d'Extraint. It's the fourth most expensive perfume in the world. It runs for about $4,200 per ounce. So maybe after we allow for uh, the difference between a conversion from fluid ounce to, um, to uh, a solid ounce, uh, and after we adjust for the average annual household income. I'm not quite sure what that is, Terry, but the U.S. Census Bureau tells me it's around 50000 for a pound or 50000 per year. So this perfume would have been worth about $50,000 in today's, um, in our world today. So this is just such extravagance. But you might say that uh, it was inevitable for this perfume to be dumped on Jesus. You guys didn't think that was funny. I, I, I thought it was funny. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, this leads us to ask another question, though. Was Judas's assumption wrong? The idea of selling it and giving it to the poor was not something he just brought out of nowhere. It was a common custom of the day that during the Passover, you would sell things that you'd have and you'd give money to the poor so that they could buy the things that they needed to celebrate the Passover as well, and so that they could be involved with the celebrations and the jubilations of freedom um, under God's rule. However, John informs us that uh, Judas only cared because he was in charge of the money, and he would often help himself. So John only cares because he's going to benefit personally from this. This leads us to note a third thing about them, their action. And they begin to scold her. This sort of stern instruction clearly flows from their assumption that they thought they knew better than the woman. Um, and what we find here is that what started out as a joyous and intimate Sabbath dinner commemorating Jesus' arrival at Bethany turns into one of dispute and scolding. However, what we find next is that Jesus responds. And in Jesus' response, I want you to note three things. He's going to defend, he's going to rebuke, and he's going to explain. 
First, Jesus defends the woman. She has done a noble thing for me. She has done what she could. She recognized Jesus as the Messiah and expressed her faith in him and love for him. The disciples, I think, must have been stunned by this. There must have been a silence in the room. So first, let's look at Jesus' defense of the woman. As we have already heard him say, she has done a noble thing for him. He adds later in verse 8 that she's done what she could. I find the literal translation of this in the Greek to be helpful. It reads, what she did, or sorry, it reads, what she had, she did. Now, Jesus commends her faithfulness with the knowledge and possessions that she has. Now, this does not mean that she spent all that she had, like the woman in Mark 12 with the two copper coins. It means that she has done the only service within her power, though. Thus, she may not have fully understood what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Nevertheless, she was going to give him the worship that he deserved with what she had. So then we notice a second thing that Jesus does. Jesus rebukes the sum. One too many. Jesus rebukes the sum. Leave her alone, he says. Why are you bothering her? You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. Now, Jesus is not saying that the poor are unimportant, um, and he's not saying that we're not to provide for them. Rather, what he's doing is he's rebuking the disciples and people of the time for a lack of obedience to the command of God. Now, Jesus, in that last verse there, he's both alluding to and partially quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15, um, and he quotes part of verse 11. For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I am commanding you. Open your hand willingly to your poor and needy brother in your land. Also in the same chapter, God warned the Israelites that if they hardened their hearts, if their eyes became stingy, and if selfishness consumed them, that there would be poor and there would be needy in the land. So what Jesus is doing is he's rebuking them, and he's saying, it's not enough to talk about what can be done for the poor by others. Rather, we are to take concrete action ourselves. However, this forces us to ask another question. Why does Jesus defend the extravagant use of perfume on himself? And this is what we find next that he explains. But you do not always have me. Remember, she anoints the Son of God, not an ordinary man or individual, but God incarnate. I think if she had done this to any other person, it would have been a sin. In addition to this, Jesus is the essence of poor in his life and ministry. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he borrowed everything that he had. He would get into someone else's boat to preach from. He would borrow someone else's boat to trap or to cross, a, to cross across, uh, <laughs> to go across Gal- Galilee. He, uh, he borrowed a colt for his entry, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He borrowed a place to celebrate, to celebrate the Passover. He borrowed a room, the Son of God, God incarnate, the Messiah. 
is the absolute picture of a poor, a poor person in this passage. And like all those other times in his ministry, the woman gave her perfume. Jesus borrowed her perfume, her oil, for his anointing as Messiah before his triumphal entry. So by providing it, this woman was in fact both showing Jesus an extravagant act of worship as well as obeying the law. However, Jesus also explains a fuller significance of what it meant um, for her to anoint him. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. As we have already explored, I don't think that the woman entirely understood what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah, nor did the disciples fully understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah at this point in time. So Jesus is explaining to them, and he is here foretelling his death once again, um, that yes, he's the Messiah. Yes, he's going to triumphantly enter into Jerusalem, but he's going to be crucified, he's going to die, and he's going to be buried. However, it doesn't end there. And Jesus explains further prophesying his resurrection. He says, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. See, Jesus' prediction that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world necessitates that he rises from the dead and that he ascends. So the central message of the good news is Jesus' death or Jesus' defeat, Jesus' defeat of sin and death through his death and resurrection. Now this brings us to the so what of this. And I have six kind of uh, theological nuggets you could say that we can take from this and I have one main theological idea that I want to share with you. The first thing is, is what we have, let's do. Like the woman, um, who did what she had, um, she seized an opportunity to sacrifice and to show love for Jesus Christ. It is often the least, um, the least of those who we expect to show greatest honor to God. Now, the woman was not a priest. She was not a prophet. Um, however, she was faithful and willing to act, and she was the one who anointed Jesus as the Messiah. Second, Near does not mean clear. Like the disciples, just because we attend church, just because we hang out with Christians, doesn't mean we understand the significance of who Jesus is as the Messiah. So we need to make sure we're studying in his word, and we need to make sure we're connecting with other believers, and we're studying that together. Um, I know they have great things here called community groups. My church down in Chicago my, that I've been attending while I'm at school, first two years, I wasn't a part of a community group. I just said, oh, I don't have time. I'm a full-time student. I work 20 hours a week. I've got other things that I have to do. There's no way I have time for this. But then finally I said, you know what? I'm going to get invested. And these past two years being invested in a community group have been amazing. So if you're not part of a community group, I hope you make time to make that happen um, so that way the significance of Jesus can become more clear as you study his word with other believers. Um, the third thing is, is the worship of God will often result in suffering. Uh, when we drastically worship God, we're going to suffer persecution. Now, I'm not just talking about physical persecution here. I'm talking about spiritual persecution, about relational persecution, and about emotional persecution. Um, and this persecution, sadly, comes from inside of the church as well as outside of the church, as we see in this story. Fourth, 
God will defend our acts of worship. When this persecution comes, it's not necessary for us to defend ourselves or to explain everything. Um, instead, we are to be faithful in our devotion and in our love for Jesus Christ. Um, as the woman's worship displays the uh, proper personal devotion of the disciple towards Jesus, and he comes to her, or and he comes to her defense. Fifthly, we are to care for the poor. Jesus says that this woman does good because she was anointing him as Messiah um, for his burial. However, since Jesus has died and risen again, I think now such gifts, such drastic gifts should be directed towards the poor. As Mark reminds us in his gospel in the 24th, 25th chapter, verse 40, he tells us, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you've done for me. Six, or sorry, uh, as, and I think as we relate to the poor, we relate to our Savior. Six, uh, we can never be aware of our own significance in God's plan. I think this is revealed by Jesus' uh, commendation of the woman. The woman had no idea of the worldwide significance of her act. Um, however, uh, nor did uh, the high priest Judas or Pontius Pilate. And as Albert Einstein said, it's a tragic mistake for those in power to think that they are in control. And I think it's also a mistake for us to think that our devotion or our worship is wasteful or insignificant. Who knows how God will use it? Like Matt spoke in his sermon last week, and he shared that story about being in the Walmart parking lot and just helping a woman load some mulch into her car. It's a simple act, um, but that woman shared with him that she didn't know if God still cared about her, and she asked that God would reveal to her that day that someone still cared. And that was the way that God revealed to her that someone still cared. So, um, so God can use simple things to lead a person to himself. Beyond this, though, what does this passage tell us about worship? Um, I like the way that this man defines worship. True worship is defined by the priority we place on who God is in our lives and where God is on our list of priorities. True worship is a matter of the heart, expressed through a lifestyle of holiness. I'll read that again just because I love it so much. True worship is defined by the priority we place on who God is in our lives and where God is in our list of priorities. True worship is a matter of the heart, expressed through a lifestyle of holiness. And thus, we are forced to ask the question, is there such a thing as too much devotion to Christ? I don't think so. I think a life of worship is total commitment that holds nothing back. So with that, if there's only one thing you remember from today, I'd like you to remember this main theological point. And that is, when we give what we have to God in acts of worship, he uses those moments to glorify himself by growing our understanding of the gospel and by showing others the gospel. So back to what Mark is doing here, I think Mark is forcing us as the reader through this contrast to ask the question, who are we? Do we worship like the woman? Do we worship with generosity, devotion, and faith? Or do we worship like the Pharisees and like the disciple who is to betray him? Do we worship out of our plenty, out of convenience, 
and according to our plan. At this point in time, I'd like to call up the worship team and just uh, have them lead us in a time of reflection. Um, And during this time, as they play, uh, if you guys want to close your eyes and bow your heads and just um, get yourself before your God, get yourself um, in a place where you can allow him to speak to you and you can speak to him um, and just chat with him. Because maybe today you're discouraged. Um, Perhaps you feel like you've been faithful with what God's given you. Perhaps you feel like you've been worshiping him with all of your heart. Um, But it's become too difficult for you, and you're not sure that you can go on. Ask God to encourage you. Ask him to strengthen you. Ask him to defend you. Or maybe today you feel like you're convicted. Perhaps there's something that's keeping you from worshiping God. Um, Ask God to walk with you through it, to bring others around you, to encourage you, and to strengthen and to defend you. So let's just take a moment of silence and just be with our God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, come before you and uh, we ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy. We recognize you as the Messiah and uh, we may not understand the complete significance of that, but we come before you with the knowledge that we have and with the gifts that you've given us and um, we ask for your encouragement, for your strength and for your defense as we seek to live into your grace and um, as we seek to walk through this world in a way of worship, in a way that honors you, and in a way that calls others to you. In your name, amen.